Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Let's say somebody puts $100,000 into a fix and flip. I'd pay them 10% interest. It takes me six months to complete the deal. So they make half a 10%. For six months, they make 5000 if that was not a self-directed IRA, if that was out of their own cash, they'd have to pay tax on that five grand and then they could do something with it. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Farrellis. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And first off, I hope we're having a best ever weekend because today is Saturday. We've got a special segment for you called Situation Saturday where we're going to talk about a particular situation so that when you come across it or if you come across it or perhaps you're in it right now, you'll know how to handle it. And this particular situation is if you are needing to raise private capital, our guest Matt Faircloth, you recognize his name. He's been on the show multiple times before just released a book called Raising Private Capital, and he's going to talk to us about how to do that from start to finish and some of the nuances of it. How you doing, Matt? I'm awesome, Joe. It is such an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Grateful that you're on the show again. And just as a refresher, best ever listeners, Matt is the co-founder and president of the DeRosa Group. Under Matt's leadership, DeRosa has completed over 30 million buckaroos in real estate transactions involving private capital. As I mentioned, he's the co-author of the new book coming that was just released, Raising Private Capital. And he's been interviewed on this show three times prior, episode 606, episode 616, and episode 1373, based in Trenton, New Jersey. So with that being said, how about you give just a refresher of your background so we have some context for your area of expertise in raising private capital? Sure, absolutely. So I got started real estate investing in 2005 when I quit my job. I was working for a company called Ingersoll Rand, which is a heavy equipment manufacturer. I quit my job with them in 2005 and started doing 
what everybody would call small real estate transactions, lived in a rental before I quit my job, like, like a house hack as we talk about, and then just did smaller flips and just grew my way up into larger real estate. Bought a duplex in Philadelphia, sold it, that transitioned into two four-unit apartments buildings in Ewing, New Jersey, and then slowly expanded that portfolio of two four-units and bought several more four-units on the block. Pretty much made it the equivalent of a 20-unit apartment complex and that, and just really grew up through residential landlord and the small stuff and then grew into the larger deals. In the downturn, we ended up getting knocked on our heels as a lot of people it did. And we were into a lot of flips at the time. So we converted a lot of those into rentals, did some commercial real estate transactions while the dust was settling. And then started really raising money as the market started to come back in 2011, started raising private capital built on the track record we had from the last six years of investing in real estate started raising private capital from investors. So from 2011 till now, almost everything that we do involves some sort of private capital because we've got a lot of folks that come to us that want to get involved in what we do. We still do fix and flips. We still do some smaller projects, but we also do larger projects. The most recent large project was 198 unit apartment complex in North Carolina. Cool. So you've been involved in raising private capital on many projects for best ever listener who has not raised private capital and is not interested in learning about raising private capital for whatever reason, why is it important, in your opinion, to know about how to raise private capital? Well, I think that raising private money somehow or another, first of all, exposes us as investors, as the action takers on these deals. In, in the book that I wrote, I call it deal provider because we go out and we find the deal and we bring it to the folks that put the money into the deal called the cash provider. So I talk about a deal provider, cash provider. So private capital is important to a deal provider because it exposes us to larger deals and allows us to do bigger projects. I closed in a 198 unit deal with other people's money and I was able to get ownership for myself and I was able to give them exposure to the profitability of that deal also, which is another reason why private capital is important is because it gives people in my network or that approach me in my circles that want to invest. It gives them access to a completely different investment that's different than what can be found on Wall Street. It's different than what can be found through them going out and maybe doing their own deals or going out and buying smaller assets. They get to benefit from some of the things that show up on larger assets. So private capital exposes both parties, the deal provider and the cash provider, to the benefits of larger assets. But why does that matter? Is it that larger deals make you more money? Because otherwise, if it's a larger deal, okay, bragging rights, that's cool. But what's the point of going larger, bringing in new investors, if it doesn't make you actually more money to go through that whole process? It enables us to pound our chest even more, Joe, <laughs> but it does like gorillas in the mist like that. Just absolutely just shout my name from a louder mountaintop. Absolutely. No, larger deals have benefits to them, such as I'll give just a few examples. And I think a lot of your listeners know, like specifically apartment buildings, kind of where that's what we're talking about. That's what I focus on. And I know your company does as well. And perhaps a lot of your listeners do too. Apartment buildings specifically have specific benefits. The deal, the deal we bought in North Carolina, I just keep using that as an example, because it's just one that we just finished. That property has a four person payroll allocation, meaning that building has four employees that whose sole purpose in their career is to maintain that building. It's got two maintenance guys and two office staff. Whereas if we had bought a smaller asset, the property manager may be torn between managing my property or maybe overstretched or whatever to managing other assets they may have. 
larger deals allow us to normalize expenses. And also there's all kinds of other benefits we don't want to get into today about forced depreciation, meaning I can make the value of the building go up through making some improvements. I can increase rents to make the value of the building go up and all that. So all those scalabilities that show up on larger assets benefit both parties. So that's why. It's because the economies work better on larger deals for many, many reasons. You're doing some small deals on the fix and flip stuff still, and you have in the past, and you're doing large deals like the one that you just mentioned in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. What are the differences in raising money on a small deal versus a large deal? Well, we have people that do self-directed IRA investments in large deals. And a lot of people do that with the self-directed IRA money. That said, the self-directed IRA, because of the way it operates, is actually a better short-term vehicle for investing. So we offer short-term investment assets. You know what I mean? Like if you want to get into a deal that lasts six months or a deal that lasts a year, you can do that and then take all the proceeds that you make. Let's say somebody puts $100,000 into a fix and flip. I'd pay them 10% interest. It takes me six months to complete the deal. So they make half a 10% for six months. They make 5,000. If that was not a self-directed IRA, if that was out of their own cash, they'd have to pay tax on that five grand and then they could do something with it or allocate for taxes or whatever. Because it's a self-directed IRA, they can take all those proceeds and roll them back into another project and compound the interest. So in the interest of scaling someone's retirement plan up on an exponential curve very quickly, short-term projects work really, really well. So that's one of the reasons why we provide those as an option for those that want to invest with us. We also just, over the years of being in the business, we've never been really a one-trick pony. We've always been into a lot of different things. So I built up a section of my company that's dedicated to fix and flip. So we can do fix and flips. And also with people that approach us with IRAs, I explained to them what I just explained to you about what to consider a short-term loan. On the other side of it, if somebody has cash, there's major tax benefits they get from holding a share of an apartment building that they get by just investing in their own name or just in cash in the property. So that is what you just described as short-term projects, fix and flips versus long-term projects. Now, separate from that, what are the differences between bringing private investors in a smaller deal versus a larger deal? Well, there's different documents that you have to do, different conversations you have to have. And it really has to do, Joe, with really seeking to understand. And when an investor calls a potential deal provider, when an investor calls one of your listeners and says, hey, listen, I'd like to get some extra money. I'd like to put the work in real estate. Can you help me? So instead of like automatically puking on them and telling them about deals you have, really understanding those investors' goals, knowing when retirement time looks like for them and getting to really know where they want to go financially. Are they trying to plan for college? Are they trying to buy a vacation home and everything like that? I've got one guy that invests with me whose goal in the next five years is to move back to his home country of Argentina and wants to make enough money investing through his real estate assets that he can live off of his assets when he's in Argentina. So now that I understand that, I have a better shot of helping him get there. So it's really has to do with understanding their goals. And then the deal and then the documentation and the legal work to protect them and everything like that. But first and foremost, understanding where they come from, where they're going, and then I can offer them a few things that we do that might plug into their goal set. When does it not make sense to do a syndication and instead you do a joint venture? Well, I had a long talk with my SEC attorney. I have not mentioned his name, which sure. Gene, Chor- Gene Chorbridge yep. on this. And Gene gave me to do a syndication. You're talking about like full stack, illegal SEC working like that, right? The deal has to qualify as a security 
And there's four things you have to satisfy to be a security. One of which, the biggest one is that you have to be invested in a common enterprise. Meaning if Joe Fairless loans Matt Faircloth money, we are not in a common enterprise. You are actually an adversary of mine. We're not on the same side of the deal. We don't win together. And believe it or not, and so like you would think that the lender would win if he just gets his interest back, but the lender has certain rights that are not in the borrower's best interest, such as foreclosure, such as taking the property back, such as putting a lien on the property, all these things, right? So a loan in itself does not meet one of the criteria for the SEC as defining it as a security. So right there, if you loan me money individually, then that's not a security. That's not an SEC activity. There's other things out there that have to do with passive investments, meaning that the investors actually have involvement in the deal or they are 100% passive with their hands off and not doing anything. But the deal has to meet all four of those prongs, which are described in the book. But the biggest one is it has to be a common enterprise. I mean, you got to be on the same side of the deal. What about a dollar threshold where financially it does or doesn't make sense to engage a securities attorney because the deal isn't a certain size. Have you ever come across that? Yeah. When we first got started, my first equity deal, Joe, was a guy put in $50,000. And this is something I talk about further in the book, but I think that some of your listeners could get started with. We had a guy with 50 grand and we took that $50,000 and we bought a couple of single family homes with it. Now, he was not 100% passive. And I don't recommend that if people are going to put that kind of money into your business, if that's all they're putting in it, that's all the money you're raising, give that investor some something to do. Get them to be somewhat active. And this guy was just auditing my books. We were on a weekly conference call, just talking briefly about what we were doing with the deal. But it allowed me to cut my teeth in equity investing instead of going to go trying to raise a couple of million for a big apartment building deal that needed an attorney. I could do a small deal in that. So I grew up through small equity investments and I was careful just to give those investors some type of an activity to be involved with. It precluded it from being a security and then an SEC regulated activity. To answer your question about how big does a deal need to get before the SEC attorneys get involved, I've rarely seen them involved in anything below about a million bucks. That's when it makes sense to bring them in because of the cost of those SEC attorneys. Mm -hmm. A million dollar purchase price or raise? Million in equity. A million dollars in equity. Got it. So the purchase price, unless you're paying all cash, would be significantly larger than that. Right. Okay. What does a securities attorney cost per hour? Well, unfortunately, we don't pay him by the hour. It's probably a good thing we don't pay him by the hour because it's like anytime I'm paying a lawyer by the hour, I start <laughs> looking at my watch whenever I'm talking to him on the phone. It's like, are you charging me? You send me this email. Are you charging me right now? Every SEC attorney I've ever dealt with gives a flat rate. And I recommend to your listeners that they try and get a flat rate out of a lawyer whenever the lawyer is doing anything for them and everything like that. Because anytime I've gotten charged by the hour with a lawyer, all of a sudden I end up having to fall out of my chair when I see their bill. <laughs> um, you're laughing because it's happened to you, Joe. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've found their fees to be in the realm of ten to 15000 give or take. For what? Do, for syndication. To do a full SEC filing. That includes your operating agreement, your subscription agreements, investor questionnaires, paperwork to the SEC, filing docs with the states and stuff like that. Because each state that each investor lives in also needs to get notified of your deal as well. So it's work. They earn it. Absolutely. They provide a lot of value. That's for darn sure. Your book is titled Raising Private Capital, and you walk the reader through from start to finish how to raise private capital. From a high level, walk us through the outline of how it's structured. 
The book, you mean? Yeah, the book. Oh, cool. Because I assume that's also how raising private capital would flow. So, Of course. So in the book, I talk in the beginning about why private capital is even important, right? So why should I even think about this stuff? And second, I talk about the prerequisites to raising private capital because I'm not one that subscribes to the mentality that someone should walk into this business with no experience, none of their own money, no track record, no contacts, no deals under their belt and say, I'm going to go forth and start raising $3 million for people to go and invest in my apartment building deal. So I developed a list of prerequisites that I feel like people need to have to be successful in raising private money. That's the whole chapter on that. Then we talk about, as I said, the lingo deal provider, cash provider. We talk about cash providers. We talk about where to look in your own network. I firmly believe that people should start looking in their own network, going in front of family, going in front of friends, doing Facebook postings and stuff like that, and doing whatever they can to broadcast themselves in their immediate circles to find people. You can eventually get there, but I think that people should start with people that like and trust them because they're them, not because of their gargantuan real estate juggernauts or anything like that, that they should start with people that just like them because they're Joe Smith or whatever, because they are who they are. So we talk about how to look in your own network for money. Then we talk about the role of the deal provider. And I present the deal provider to be really a custodian of other people's money. In a way, you're responsible for their capital. And I talk about what that role looks like. We talk about how to structure deals. We talk about many, many different types of deals that you can get into. Of course, debt and equity, as I mentioned before, about borrowing money or putting money into projects. I give a lot of case studies on small deals that I did, large deals that I did. I turn myself in and talk about deals that I did that didn't work out too well and times that I lost money on deals. That's in the book. This isn't just like a Matt Faircloth bragging session, I promise. It's like, this is like, in some ways, the book was therapy, writing mm-hmm. it yeah. <laughs> in that. And then at the end, we get into what I think a lot of investors don't think of as much, which is how to unwind the deal. And investors focus a lot on, let me find the opportunity, then let me find the money, now let me close. But then once you're in the deal, there's a chapter on just maintaining the deal and maintaining communications with investors. That's something I've learned a lot from you, actually, Joe, to put you on the spotlight on you, but is on investor relations during the ownership of the deal. That's a chapter in itself. And then at the end, we talk about, like I said, unwinding the deal, which is getting these folks their money back. And I think that those two sections, unwinding the deal and the day-to-day maintenance of the deal and day-to-day maintenance of your investor database is something that many investors forget about. They're so focused on finding the opportunity, finding the money. But that's only like a third of the battle. There's the other two thirds that are where real success is and real longevity is created, I think. In terms of the cash providers looking in their own network, any practical tips for the best ever listeners who can then go within their own network, assuming they qualify for raising private capital based on your prerequisites? Of course. Here's what I think. Too many people are going to get stuck. Like, I don't know any millionaires, or I'm not a member of a country club, or I don't know people that are big time real estate folks that want to pump lots of equity in. What people don't realize is there are cash providers that have access to quite a bit of capital that might not even know that they have it. So the biggest source that I think is an untapped source in America is retirement accounts. So if you have a listener right now that has someone that's in their circle that used to work at a great job and now works at another job, and when they worked at job A, they had some sort of retirement program. It was a 401k. When they moved over to job B, that 401k is now able to get rolled into an IRA. 
Once it's an IRA, it can then get just held with a self-directed IRA custodian. That custodian then allows that potential cash provider to direct that money wherever they want it to go. They can buy gold with it. They can buy stocks if they want. They can buy mutual funds just like they were doing with, with their 401k account. They can also lend money on real estate and they can invest in partnerships. So they can direct that capital in a lot of different directions. And that, so what deal providers don't realize is a lot of people job hop these days and the concept of someone working for one company for 30 years is pretty much gone. Most people rotate companies every five to seven years. So it's a matter of just looking at your Rolodex and thinking like, yeah, Uncle John and Aunt Sally and that guy I went to high school with or whatever, they all used to work at this company. So now they're over at this company or whatever. They may be able to invest their retirement accounts in real estate and being able to show them the benefits of such. And the book talks about how to have those conversations once you've identified these people. Incredibly valuable. When we talk about private money and raising private money. Is there anything as it relates to that topic that we haven't touched on during this conversation that you think we should? Hmm. I can't stress enough how much of a custodian the deal providers are. There's a certain level of personal responsibility that you have. And so I think that there's a gut check that the your listeners have to have before they want to go out and start raising money about like, am I really prepared to go and take six figures from somebody and put it to work in my business and, and be confident enough that I can return that capital to them safely and with a return to it? There's a certain gut check with yourself in the mirror that you got to do, which I go to in the book as well, is about the person you have to be to be able to do this. Again, looking at yourself in the mirror, I think everybody can do this, but about looking at yourself in the mirror and making sure that you have the tools in yourself to be able to do this and feel like you've got the integrity and you've got the wherewithal to be a financial custodian for others. Once you feel that way, then you can go out and do it. How can the best ever listeners buy your book and get in touch with you? They can find it on Amazon once it gets released there. It comes out on Bigger Pockets on July 26th. But this is after July 26th. They can go to biggerpockets.com forward slash store and they can get a copy of the book there. If they pick it up quickly, there is a bunch of bonus material that Bigger Pockets and I put together for the book, including an interview with my SEC attorney, including a roadmap that they can go along with as they're reading the book to take them through their first deal. And I also wrote another ebook on doing your first apartment building deal. That's in there as well. And the Bigger Pockets even has a webinar too that's with just me and the folks that sign up for it. If you buy the book, you can sign up for that as well. To participate in all of those things, you have to buy the book fairly soon after it comes out. So let's say before mid-August, if you're listening to this, then check it out. Go to biggerpockets.com forward slash private money book or biggerpockets forward slash store and pick it up. But check it out either way. Awesome. And I'm very familiar with your book because you asked me to write the forward in it. And I was very honored by you asking me and I checked it out and I wrote the forward in it. Yeah. So very grateful you did it because on, on a personal note, something we talk about in the book is about being a thought leader and about being a champion for the industry that you're in and being a voice that kind of moves your industry forward in that. And that's something I talk about in the book, but that concept and the seed that got planted in my head to take my YouTube page to the next level years ago came from you. You planted that seed and it's now, our YouTube channel has, as of today, about 11,000 subscribers and it had maybe like a couple hundred when you, you planted that seed. So I'm very grateful and that that's the least I could do to get you who planted a lot of the ideas that are in that book in my head. So it was just was very fitting for you to write the forward. So I appreciate you doing that too. 
Hey, my pleasure, and congrats on the book. Looking forward to the best ever listeners checking it out. Thanks again for being on the show, talking about one practical way to find cash providers in our own network that self-direct IRA accounts. So think about people who have job hopped, had a good job, then went to another job. They can roll their 401k into an IRA, and that can be converted into a self-direct IRA. Clearly, there's going to be some education involved there with them, but that is a goldmine for a lot of listeners who know individuals whose scenario that fits. And then also, why it's important to know about raising private capital? Well, you make more money because you do bigger deals, and bigger deals create scalability. Then you can make more money along the way, and so can your investors. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net. And be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net.